Today, we discuss the massive election checkpoints of the coming week. We talk about a new radical step taken this week by the district attorney in L.A. County, and we analyze the importance of the Georgia runoffs. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Tuesday, everyone. I hope and pray you had a fantastic weekend and a great start to your week. We have a lot that I want to get to today, so I'm going to jump right in. But before I do, I want to ask that if you have enjoyed this show, if you've listened to Refining Politics and Culture for any length of time, and you have liked what you've heard, if it's been a helpful resource for you, please share the show with your community. Helps it grow tremendously. Also, please leave a positive review for the show on Apple if you have not already. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And finally, if you'd feel led to donate to the show, you can do that on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Go hit that donate button. It is an honor to be speaking with you today. I'm thankful that you tuned in. Let's jump into it. So today, December 8th, is the safe harbor deadline, meaning that states are supposed to have any disputes related to the election resolved by today so that the state legislatures can choose the electors and make sure that they're choosing the appropriate electors and making sure that the certification of their state votes are valid before moving forward on December 14th and the electors casting their votes for president and then January 6th where the Congress actually goes in and counts those electoral votes. So it's sort of a trickle-down effect from what happens today. Now, the reality is we do not have our different results in states uh, fully. They are certified, but they're not fully free of dispute, meaning there are still ongoing court cases, and it's not like those court cases just evaporate after today. But the reality is once today goes and passes, it gets a lot harder for the Trump campaign to actually overturn the results of these different states. So Essentially, there's nothing in law that says that you still can't have ongoing disputes after December 8th. But what it does mean is that those disputes would only have to be that much more significant in order to actually overturn the results of these states because electors have already been chosen and therefore the state legislatures would be somewhat limited in what they can fully do to choose electors that would maybe be sort of um, faithless electors and they would vote opposite of what their popular vote voted for in their state if the evidence of fraud was compelling enough to say, you know what, this election is fraudulent. We cannot go along with the vote as it currently stands. Now, these electors will be chosen based upon the premise, the assumption that these results in these different disputed states are valid as they stand, meaning that they will likely vote with the results as they stand on December 14th. It's just another hurdle for the Trump campaign to have to get over, but they apparently are pressing forward. And again, I think that there is enough still outstanding and enough questions that have still not been answered because nobody's bothering trying to answer except for these private entities, campaign officials, whoever it might be, Trump's legal team that are trying to press forward in court. Uh, they, there's enough out there still that we do not know that I'm a, I'm a supporter of the Trump campaign going on as long as they see a path and as long as they see stones that still need overturned. But it's a sobering reality to recognize that after today, it gets a lot more difficult for them to make those moves. It just means that the revelations or the proof has to be so clear that these different entities, whether it's the Supreme Court or whether it's Department of Justice or the FBI, if there's an investigations being conducted, whatever it is, the evidence would have to be compelling enough to where in the courts or in the justice system, they say we have to encourage Congress to challenge the results of this election, invalidate some of these states. This is what, however, whatever path they would decide to go there, it would just, it's a big 
hill to climb at this point. Now, it is not not doable, so it's still absolutely possible, and the Trump campaign still sees a path. We will see which route they go. We're going to talk about all this on Thursday, so I'm actually going to leave this mostly here for now, but I do want to tell you a piece of very interesting news that should give the Trump campaign hope. And honestly, depending on when you're listening to this episode, this may not be relevant anymore because we may know the result because we're supposed to know the results of this uh, new change by noon on today, December 8th. So I want to read you this headline. I want to give you a bit of the update of what's happening in Pennsylvania. And then we will basically plan on however this happens, however the cookie crumbles related to what I'm about to tell you, we will cover it on Thursday. So if it happens, something happens that's favorable to the Trump campaign, we'll talk about that and all the ramifications. If something happens and it's negative to the Trump campaign, we'll talk about all that on Thursday as well. This is Ryan Safidra reporting. Supreme Court gives lawsuit to upend Pennsylvania election result, new life by moving up the deadline. Justice Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court ordered Pennsylvania state officials to respond to Representative Mike Kelly, who's a Republican congressman from Pennsylvania's election challenge a day sooner than previously ordered, which forces them to to do so before the safe harbor deadline. The safe harbor deadline is the date set by the federal government that the states choose their electors. Alito had previously ordered the the officials to respond to Kelly by Wednesday, a day after the deadline, which many read as a signal that the Supreme Court had no intention of getting involved in the case. So essentially, quick pause here. The Supreme Court basically ordered the state officials to respond to the uh, person bringing the challenge to the Supreme Court by Wednesday, which made a lot of people feel like, well, then the Supreme Court must not be taking it seriously because they obviously don't think that there's something strong enough to influence the state's choice of the electors, and the states have to have chosen their electors by the end of the day on the 8th. Then what happened that made this interesting is that Justice Samuel Alito actually came back and said, we're going to move the day forward 24 hours, so we're going to require the state officials to have their response. And by 9 a.m. today, Eastern time, which means that, again, by the time that this is recorded, many of you will probably have already had clarity on this decision here. And then that way, the Supreme Court can make a decision by noon today whether or not they're going to offer relief so that the state uh, legislators can make sure that they are certifying, essentially, with the choosing of electors, the proper vote by the end of the day. We're going to have clarity on this. Again, likely by the time you're listening, we're going to talk about it on Thursday, regardless of what happens. Best case scenario, Act 77 and the way in which mail-in ballots were put in place in Pennsylvania is ruled unconstitutional because it was unconstitutional. It was not a proper process to changing the way in which elections happen in the state of Pennsylvania. So let's say that that takes place and all the mail-in ballots are ruled unconstitutionally. All of a sudden, Pennsylvania becomes invalid. Or turns to Trump. I mean, if this actually happens for the Trump campaign, if best case scenario takes place where the Supreme Court decides to take the case, Ted Cruz gets to argue for the Trump campaign, which he's announced that he would, that would be a huge deal because Ted Cruz is obviously a very seasoned professional when it comes to constitutional law. And he is someone who's actually been tapped to potentially one day be on the Supreme Court himself. He's been in the conversation in the past. So if that actually takes place, if Trump has a win in the Supreme Court, all of a sudden the tide can turn in quite a big way because essentially you only need two other states. And with some of the ongoing litigation, this Supreme Court boost would almost establish a sort of precedence that they'd be willing to take these Supreme Court cases. And so when you look at states like Arizona or Georgia, where there are other uh, motions to try to have the Supreme Court take up their cases as well, at least that's the way it looks like it's going after different lower courts dismiss their cases and then they file appeals to the Supreme Court. If that's the way that this goes, All of a sudden, the Trump campaign would feel a jolt of adrenaline and momentum in their system to really keep fighting to see these other court cases through even past the December 8th deadline. So 
I keep saying this and I'm going to say it again. This election is not over. It's not over till it's over, not only because the Trump campaign is signaling that they want to move forward, but also constitutionally. This election is not over constitutionally. December 14th is really the next deadline because then that's when the electors cast their votes. So we'll know a whole lot more then. And then January 6th ultimately is when the electoral votes are actually counted. So there's a lot more that will take place over the next few weeks. The options as time goes on do narrow for the Trump campaign. But I will say that what's happening in Pennsylvania right now is actually promising for the Trump campaign. This is a step in the right direction for them that, again, if this were to happen, could theoretically be a sort of domino effect for these other states that are currently in contention. So that's a rundown of what could happen today. It's a massive day, regardless of how this all goes. Make sure that you're following me on Instagram at Real Michael Seifert, where I will be covering this day on my stories in great detail. I hope and pray that that's a helpful resource for you. It's a very fun one for me. I love to being up to date on what's happening in the world around us and then communicating that to you all. So uh, make sure that you tap into that resource. Also, we will cover this in great deal on Thursday. So make sure you tune back in for that episode, regardless of the results today and how things play out. Now, what I want to do is I want to shift gears and I want to tell you a little bit about a breaking new development out of Los Angeles County. Now, you may be asking yourself, or me, Michael, why do I need to care about uh, what's happening in Los Angeles County? I live in Oklahoma or Maine or Nebraska or Delaware or Florida, wherever it might be, and it feels very out of sight, out of mind. Quick pause, by the way. I'm incredibly grateful that we have regular listeners in all 50 states. Not only that, we have regular listeners in multiple cities in all 50 states, which is in Incredible. That is such a blessing. And then if you zoom out even farther, this past weekend, we just hit our 70th country that the show has made its way into. So I can't thank you all enough. Honestly, I pinch myself every day that I have the blessing that God would grant me with this blessing to be able to speak to you all about these important political, cultural, and faith issues. So that's my quick pause just to thank you and acknowledge how grateful I am for each and every one of you. Now, back to the topic here. The reason why it's so important, even if you don't live in Los Angeles County, even if you don't live in one of these major metropolitan areas, Even if you live in a very rural community, the reason it's so important to care about what happens in these regions is because, like the phrase goes, so goes California, so goes the nation, what we see is that in states like California, like in New York, and some of these, zooming in even further, in some of these metropolitan areas like New York, like San Francisco, like New York, excuse me, like Los Angeles, like New York, like San Francisco, if you look at the policies that they embrace, if you look at the legislative action that they take or the judicial action that the judges in these different regions take, you'll see that a lot of other regions of the country, even moderate or even right-leaning regions of the country, different cities around the nation, end up embracing those same policies just five or ten years down the road. So what's necessary is that we look at what's happening in some of these major areas, especially cities around the country where things are not going well, Seattle, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and we then look forward and say, okay, how can I make sure that the city or the region that I live in does not repeat the same mistakes? And then we take those lessons into our voting habits to make sure that the destruction that Los Angeles is currently enduring does not happen in other regions regions around the country. There are so many people that leave these regions because it's unlivable, and then they end up voting the same way that they voted when they lived in these unlivable regions, and it's those policies that they voted for that made the regions unlivable in the first place. It's such a backwards way of doing things, and actually, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So it's a lack of learning from our history. It's a lack of awareness of what actually causes destruction in some of these major cities. It's an unawareness of what has led to San Francisco and Los Angeles homeless spike, for example. 
And so if we're not paying attention to it, what we'll find is that we end up embracing the same policies that have led to destruction in other places in regions that are currently not enduring destruction. And then at the end of the day, we just all endure destruction. And that's not what anybody wants. The last thing I'll say on this before I actually read you the story, I know I've uh, gone on a bit of a tangent here, but I believe this is really important. I think there's a lesson for the church in this. For the last 20, 30, 40 years, the church has largely abdicated its role to progressive culture, secular politicians, to dictate the world around us. And in reality, I believe that God has called us to get on the front lines, to get in the arena, and for us to be the ones with a, a Christian worldview running out and making the decisions, joining the conversation, getting involved in the public sphere. Because then what happens when we don't is that we see societies decimated around us. We see Los Angeles become completely unlivable in so many regions of the city. And then the church is left having to do cleanup duty. So we come in after the fact. And once the destruction's already been done, we clean up, we help, we love, we minister. The church loves to minister to the poor. We do not like to talk about what made the poor poor in the first place. We love to minister to the homeless. We do not like to talk about why we have the homelessness crisis. We love to minister to in crime-infested areas. We do not like to talk about why they're crime-infested. And I believe that this has been a grave mistake on part of the church. We're not equipping the saints to deal with economic issues. We're not equipping them to know how to talk about what sort of political ideologies lead to wealth accumulation versus lead to a region having to depend upon the state to be their provider. We don't overview any of that. We don't talk about history. And I'm not saying that this is the role of every church. I'm not saying every church has to turn into a civics lesson. I don't, I don't even think that that should necessarily be the goal. What I am saying is that if we're going to go into regions of the country and we are going to minister to them and love them well, we should understand why they're in the circumstances they're in in the first place, both individually and then you know in their community. So if you look at an individual in a region, and then if you also look at the region as a whole, if it's marked by crime infestation or destruction or poverty, whatever it might be. And we do this internationally as well. We send missionaries all the time to countries like Nicaragua, where there's a high level of poverty. And we'll have these well-meaning people that love the Lord and they want to serve well. They'll go to these countries and they will build homes and meet with people and engage with the local community and love them well and serve food to those that are really struggling. And then they'll leave and they would have never heard the name Daniel Ortega. They'll leave Nicaragua and have no idea why the country is suffering so much. They'll have no idea how it became, uh, how it got to the situation that they're in today. We head to Central America all the time. We head to some of these different African nations, and we don't talk about the civil wars that are going on. We don't talk about the dictators that rule some of these regions and that have led with federal government takeover-style policies that have decimated populations and their ability to accumulate wealth and economic prosperity for their families and their communities. We don't talk about that. And again, I don't expect every pastor to be a history teacher. What I am saying is that we cannot be afraid of the conversation because it's too political. We need to be able to jump into the arena, recognize that the separation of church and state did not mean that the church was not supposed to talk about what makes a state healthy and what makes it not. That is not the goal of separation of church and state. That's another conversation for another time. But I am hopeful that as the church gets more into the arena, we see less regions affected by poverty so that not only are we there for the after effects once destructions happen, but we actually could maybe even prevent destruction from taking place in the first place. We could make California a livable place again. And then once we learn from that, we can make some of these other regions that often follow California's lead livable as well. So I want to read you the story out of the Daily Wire. New Soros-backed LA County District Attorney issues directive to not prosecute numerous crimes and eliminates bail. So step in the wrong direction for sure. And again, churches need to be aware 
People need to be aware in regions around the country and around the world of the decisions that are being made because they follow larger trends. George Gascon, Los Angeles County's new district attorney who was heavily backed by leftist megadonor George Soros, announced on Monday radical changes that he would pursue, including getting rid of cash bail, declining prosecutions for numerous misdemeanor crimes, and banning prosecutors from seeking enhanced prison sentences. He issued a directive to prosecutors, or excuse me, a directive to prosecutors notifying them that the following misdemeanors would be declined for criminal prosecution moving forward. There's a few exemptions, but this is they're largely all encompassing. Trespassing, disturbing the peace, driving without a valid license, loitering to commit prostitution, and resisting arrest. Those misdemeanors would be declined for criminal prosecution moving forward. This is wild, guys. I mean, this is the most radical step that the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office has taken in a long time. And this is what he's saying. I recognize for many this is a new path, whether you're a protester, a police officer, or a prosecutor. I ask you to walk with me. I ask you to join me on this journey. No way. That is crazy. This is one of the wildest decisions to be made out of Los Angeles County in a long time. And if you live in L.A., Praying for you. <laughs> I actually lived there for a while myself, and it's an amazing place. My wife and I loved it. L.A. County is filled with fantastic people. Unfortunately, in L.A. County, you have a very loud group of people, a very vocal group of people that largely loves to make decisions for the rest of the group of people, and they love to make destructive decisions. And then instead of learning from their mistakes and analyzing and being self-aware enough to realize that what they're doing is destroying the city, they just double down, and they, they implement those policies even more so. And so Los Angeles is in a really tough decision and decisions like this are in a really tough place. And decisions like this only make the circumstances more dire. In fact, a veteran prosecutor who requested to remain anonymous because they feared retaliation told the Los Angeles Times that Gascon's policies are, quote, a slap in the face to crime victims, both past victims and the ones to come. His blanket policies do not take into account that we are the only people standing between truly dangerous criminals and the general public. He said, I'm already getting concerned emails from concerned victims. What am I supposed to say to them? Then here's where this gets especially troublesome. The Los Angeles Times reported in November that Gascon had been boosted over incumbent Jackie Lacey by millions of dollars from Soros and philanthropist Patty Quillen, whose husband is Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, by the way. People, uh, because people are limited to how much money they can give directly to campaigns, the majority of the money given by big-time donors are given to super PACs. So Soros was the top donor in the race. He gave $2.25 million to back Gascon. So Soros has a long history of this, by the way, of if you follow the money, of giving to chaos candidates. He loves to fund candidates that are willing to operate on the fringes, that are willing to embrace radicalism. And here's what people don't understand. First of all, as much as I would love for politics to not be so driven by money, it's just how it is right now. And once that happens, these politicians, if they got elected largely due to someone's money, because money is often power in politics, don't you think that they're beholden to their interests? So for example, do you really think that George Soros will give this guy two and a quarter million dollars and then essentially just say, all right, now do whatever you want to do? That is not how these things work. Once someone is elected by a large sum of money from an individual donor like this, they are tied to that donor's interests. George Soros gets to dictate what happens in Los Angeles County now. He does. It's just the way that things go. If you're giving $2.25 million to a candidate, inherently that candidate is going to be tied to you. You are going to assume a level of loyalty. Soros does. He does not have a moral compass. His ethics are non-existent. He's proven that in the past. He loves to fund chaos. Again, it only takes following the money to, to see that. A lot of this stuff is in public records, guys. So two and a quarter million dollars to back this guy. 
And now we can understandably assume that this uh, Gascon, this district attorney, will continue to be largely loyal to George Soros's interests. So essentially, George Soros has leadership as an unelected official over the region of Los Angeles County. That's deeply concerning. And he doesn't stop there. So Fox News actually highlighted several local attorneys who won with Soros's backing this election cycle, including Shalina Cook-Jones, who's the Democrat district attorney elect for Chatham County in Georgia, and St. Louis Democrat circuit attorney Kimberly Gardner. So People like this, guys, that have no desire to see societies actually function healthily are investing large sums of money across the country. And we have to wake up and realize this isn't cynical of me to assume this. This is how politics has worked for the last 50 years. If you follow the money, if you look who is giving and where they're giving and how much money they're giving, and then you look at their policy beliefs, and then you look at what ends up happening during the elected officials' terms, you'll find that they're very closely aligned. You will rarely find a politician who receives a $2.25 million donation from someone and then is totally fine confronting them on issues or acting in a way that is antithetical to how they would like them to act. So I'm going to leave that there. We're going to, ki- we're going to continue talking about this over the next few weeks as we uh, see the side effects and how this all continues to roll out. Uh, also, I'm praying for Los Angeles, really praying that wise decisions are made. Also praying that God would give pastors really clear vision about how to have these conversations, uh, whether it's in community groups or teaching a class or whatever it might be related to policy and giving some context for why uh, some of these areas that we do ministry in so often are the way that they are and why they're struggling with the things that they're struggling with. But shifting gears, now what I want to do for the rest of this episode is I want to talk to you about Georgia. Georgia is on my mind, as it is many other people around this country right now, because because in just a few weeks, we are going to endure one of two of the most important runoff races, arguably, gosh, I would even say arguably in U.S. history. These are such races of consequence because depending on how they go, depending on the ultimate results of these two Senate runoff races between one between Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock and then another between David Perdue and John Ossoff, depending on what happens, the country looks like a very different place. So I want to give you a bit of a backstory here. Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue are the two incumbents. So they're currently in the Senate. And then uh, you've got John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock that are both newcomers. And they're the two challengers. Those are two Democrats. And the two incumbents are two Republicans currently. Uh, Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock were in a jungle primary this past year, which is essentially where there's multiple candidates. And then the top two go on to a runoff. So that's that's what happened there. Uh, the And Kelly Loeffler was racing against not only Raphael Warnock, but also Doug Collins. So they kind of had to split the Republican vote there. So going into this runoff, technically in that jungle primary, Kelly Loeffler was second. But at the end of the day, if you combine all the Republican votes, she has far more votes than Raphael Warnock did. And then you've got David Perdue and John Ossoff, where they had a traditional election on November 3rd. But the way that Georgia's elections work, if you don't get over 50% in your election, it automatically gets sent to a runoff. So You have to win over 50%, and David Perdue won like 49.7%. So he was super close, a few thousand votes off, and he would have been over that 50% threshold, but he barely missed it. So inherently, we have two runoff races on January 5th, and currently the layout of the Senate is 50 to 48 in favor of the Republicans. So there are 50 Republican senators and 48 Democratic senators. So let's go over best case scenario here. For the Republicans, the best case scenario, and I'm not going to talk about the presidential election for a second. I want to just talk about the Senate. The best case scenario here is that they win both of those runoffs, and then the layout is 52-48 Republicans. Best case for Democrats, obviously, is that they win 
both seats and it's 50 to 50. And then that tie-breaking vote is set by whoever is the vice president. So if Kamala Harris ends up being the vice president and the Democrats won the Senate, essentially Kamala Harris would serve as a sort of 51st senator senator because on any tied uh, legislation, she would be the tie-breaking vote. So for Democrats, that is their dream come true. For Republicans, that is the worst nightmare. But the good news for the Republicans is that they actually have more paths to victory here because the Republicans can afford to lose one seat and still hold their Senate majority. The Democrats have to win both seats and win the presidency to have any sort of majority in the Senate. So the Republicans can lose Kelly Loeffler's seat but retain David Perdue's seat or the other way around and still keep the Senate. It'd be 51-49 essentially. So let's add the presidential race into it. The best case scenario then for Republicans is obviously that Trump and Pence pull off a miracle uh, you know, the Supreme Court decides to take this case in Pennsylvania. Ted Cruz decides to advocate for uh, the Trump campaign and argue the case. And it goes well. And then it sets precedent for other states. And other states start to see, hey, the Supreme Court's really, they, they show that they'd be willing to in- intervene in an election case if the merits are are there. And ours can be similar. It's a little different bit of a case. But uh, it's, it's something that we believe should be justifiable in front of the court. So we're going to challenge it too. I mean, you could get this momentum shift. So the best case would be Trump wins the presidency and the two Senate seats go to the Republicans. So David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler win. Or even one goes to the Republicans. Then you've got the presidency, you've got the Senate in Republican hands, and the House is actually not in your hands, but it's the closest margins where it's not in your hands in like, gosh, I think it's like 125 years. So you're in a really good spot there legislatively in their federal government if that's your layout as well as the executive branch. The Democrats, like I mentioned, obviously are in the best uh, seat if they have the executive branch go to them. So Kamala and Joe win. And they also were to win the Senate. They win both of those seats. Kamala gets to serve as 50 for senator. And then they also have the majority in the House. That is a very, very different country that the United States begins to look like. I mean, it, if that happens, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the United States chooses to go down a very different path than we've ever gone down before. How do we know this? Because they have told us that if they win, as Chuck Schumer said just last month, we will change America. We will radically change America. They've promised it. I'm just going to tell you what exactly they're promising. So there's also a scenario in which Trump wins the presidency by a miracle and loses the Senate, but at least then he basically has veto power over a ton of legislation. There's also a scenario in which the Republicans keep the Senate, but Joe Biden and Kamala win the presidency. And at this moment, that's probably the most likely to happen. But again, it's 2020 and it is not over till it's over. But let's say that happens that essentially the Republican Senate is a safeguard to a certain degree against a level of radicalism that would be present if Democrats controlled the executive branch and the legislative branch. So that's kind of the, the layout of what's possible. Um, and there's there's a lot of interesting little intricate scenarios related to this of uh, you know, you always have the few Republicans or Democrats that will vote maybe opposite their party and different things. Joe Manchin on the Democratic side or Mitt Romney on the Republican side, Susan Collins. So the Senate is a a delicate structure and institution at the moment because the margins are so tight and it only makes January that much more important. And again, the Senate has a great deal of power over the United States and the affairs that we decide to pursue and what legislation we embrace and which we turn away from. So I want to talk and, and just, again, from my conservative viewpoint, so I am sharing a bit of my bias here. This is, these are my opinions, but it is also based upon what the Democrats have promised that they would do in the event Democrats controlled 
the legislative and the executive branch. I want to talk about what that would actually look like in the hopes of stressing, for my personal opinion, why these Georgia runoffs are so important and why, in my opinion, it's so important that the conservatives win these Georgia runoffs, at least one of them. If the Democrats win, if they're able to have their dream scenario come true, where Joe and Kamala win the presidency, let's be real, Kamala and Joe win the presidency, if that were to take place, and they win the Senate and they keep the House, we can reasonably expect, because they've told us they would do this, a packed Supreme Court. There's enough of them that are in the mainstream that could get the rest of the crew on board with that if they had absolute power and didn't have to worry about a re-election around the corner. We can expect even more radical abortion legislation. I say even more radical because any amount of allowing abortion is radical and awful. Um, so they would just take it even a step further and they would require your tax dollars to actually go to late-term abortions. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's sickening to even think about, but that is what they've promised to do. They have said that they would move to create a $15 federal minimum wage, which is just an awful idea. And I haven't talked much about the minimum wage. That's probably an episode for another time. I'm going to write that down and remember that. I think it's worth a whole episode, honestly, because there are so many bad ideas today that have become very mainstream that we just don't even bother asking about anymore. $15 federal minimum wage, it does not take a whole lot of common sense to realize that that's a bad idea. Cost of living is exuberantly different in some places more than others, and you're all of a sudden going to level the playing field across the country and require every small business to pay the same. How on earth do you expect the small business in South Dakota or Oklahoma or Nebraska or Iowa or South Carolina, wherever it is, to live by those standards, to jack up their prices to their entry-level workers, and by the way, we're seeing this already in California. We have a $13 federal, or not federal, we have a $13 state minimum wage in California, and we are the worst state in the country to do business. We're ranked number 50 every single year to do business. Why would we think, oh, well, all right, well, let's do more of that. Let's, let's actually even stretch it farther. Let's do $15. They're doing $13. let us make it even worse. Let's do $15. The other thing that we never talk about is, okay, let's say you make the entry-level wage $15 an hour. What happens to the middle wage earners, the ones that were making $15 an hour because they've been at the company for two years or they've been at the restaurant for three years and they've been a faithful server and now they're making $15 because that was sort of a middle expertise wage. Now all of a sudden you've got to raise their wages too because do you think that the people that are working there for three years are going to be fine making the same wages as the person that just joined yesterday? Of course not. So they're going to ask for a raise as well. So you'll have to jack up their prices and you're not just going to be able to jack them up 50% because they're going to say, look, this guy was making eight bucks an hour and now he's making 15. I probably need to be making around 20 just to keep things proportional. So awful ideas, but common sense is not prioritized today. All that's prioritized is looking like you're caring. That, that's what prioritized. If you look compassionate, it doesn't matter if what you're actually doing is compassionate. People don't care. They'll just vote for you anyways. So look compassionate and you'll get the votes needed. We don't need to talk about how we're going to do it or how we'll pay for it or how we won't drown small businesses in the process like they have in California. We'll just tell them $15 an hour from uh, entry-level workers. People will get really excited and, and then we'll just kind of lie our way through stuff saying that we have plans for it and we'll get elected. So sad, but that is where we're at. Uh, we know that restrictions on religious liberties through a whole of government, federal government approval of the Equality Act would certainly take place. I've talked about the Equality Act in the show in the past. 
uh, a wholehearted embrace of the failed foreign policy and China supporting trade policies of the Obama era would reemerge and only be emphasized when uh, a Biden-Kamala presidency would feel emboldened by a blue Senate and a blue House as well, if that were to happen. We'd have a sellout of our nation of failed four failed globalist visions of utopia like the Great Reset. I mentioned in my last episode last week that John Kerry, Biden's climate czar, has made it very clear that that's the route that they'd want to go in the event that, you know, obviously John Kerry said that Biden won, but Biden has not won just because the media says something does not make it true. If Biden ends up winning, that is something that they would embrace wholeheartedly, the Great Reset. And I've done two episodes, actually, not just this past one, but the one uh, the week before that as well, talking about what that truly means for our society. So that is just skimming the surface of some of the radical propositions. There are so many more, but uh, that the Democrats have put on the table in the event they were to actually win the legislative and the executive branch heading into this 2021 year. And again, this is not uncommon. They've told us that they would do these things. These are in their official policy platforms. Nancy Pelosi said that we are uh, we have all the means at our disposal. There is nothing that would stop us. Every option is on the table to exert our power. Chuck Schumer said that if we w- first, you know, we win the presidency and then we radically transform the country, that is their goal. So let's let's look into these two candidates a bit. There are four candidates, like I mentioned: Kelly, David. Raphael and John Ossoff. But I want to focus on the Democrats because, again, I'm talking about what would happen in the worst case sort of scenario if you're a conservative. And I also want to talk about these two Democratic candidates for the rest of our episode because Kelly and David are the incumbents. We know them. We've seen them. We know how they voted on things. John Ossoff and Warnock, Raphael, are are very much newcomers to the game politically. Uh, John Ossoff was an investigative journalist and Raphael Warnock was actually a pastor. So there is not a ton of political background. But they both have taken very clear policy stances on issues in the past. So I want to go through these two candidates. Let's start with Raphael Warnock. So Warnock is actually a pastor from Atlanta whose theology is a total mess. He pontificates regularly to anyone who may disagree with his radical views. He's, he's a very self-righteous person. Just that's my perception of him. Again, he's a fellow believer in Christ. So I'm just judging the fruit from what I see. And uh, I've followed this guy and kind of looked at what does he believe and what does he stand for? And that is not me not loving him. It is me speaking the truth about him. Doesn't mean I don't pray for him. All of that stuff, his own beliefs, he's got to take that up with God. And that's not for me to be able to make a final judgment on, but it is for me to be able to call out and refine and judge the fruit of, because that is what we're called to do in the body. I hold him to a different standard when he professes the name of Jesus than I do an atheist, for example. Um, So that's the first thing here is that he's a pastor who uses scripture to justify awful things. For example, he uses Acts 2 and the sort of commonality that was shared within the church body to justify the state taking your rights away in the name of socialism. So he he uses the Bible to advance a socialist agenda. He refused to denounce socialism even just two nights ago in a debate. So we're, we've, we've seen that this is a guy who uses scripture to advance a federal takeover of society in order for the government to become the federal compassion provider. We've also seen him use his faith to justify abortion, but then he does it with no real backing. So he'll say all the time that my my abortion stance is supported by my faith. And then you ask him, what do you mean? And it's a very loose argument. He kind of falls apart. It doesn't really make sense. And then he always comes back to this statement. I want to read it to you because this is a direct quote. He uses it all the time. He says, I happen to think that a patient's room is too small a place for a woman, her doctor, and the U.S. government. He said, I think that's too many people in the room. That is Warnock's quote. That is what he always goes back to. So he'll talk about abortion, and then he'll really just bring it back to this false sense of women's choice. Raphael's in that camp. He fights hard for abortion rights, and not only is he someone who 
uh, believes that it's a problem, but we should legalize it. And, you know, that that's a whole other issue in and of itself. But he's actually goes a step further to, to celebrate abortion rights. Planned Parenthood donated $200,000 to his campaign. So wild stuff there. Uh, he genuinely believes that America is a fallen, corrupt nation that's befouled by racism. It's besmirched by capitalism. In fact, he makes that very clear in a book he wrote in 2013. It's called The Divided Mind of the Black Church. Um, in it, he actually praised Marxism and he castigated, quote, white capitalistic forces. And that's a common thread that holds his writings and his sermons all together. He's a big fan of critical race theory. He, in 2015, called police officers thugs and bullies. He said America should repent of their, quote, worship of whiteness in 2016. He said in a sermon that you can't serve God and be in the military at the same time and serve the military. He, um, on Sunday, like I mentioned, refused to announce Marxism and socialism. He also uh, had a mentor, James Hal Cohn, and Cohn was a controversial black theologian who labeled white Christians as racist, in, in just inherently because they're white Christians, and white Christianity as, quote, the Antichrist. So that is an evil ruler that corrupts the world just because of the color of your skin as a white Christian. And he has refused to denounce his late mentor. And in fact, he's gone a step farther. He even gave the eulogy at his funeral. And Warnock, by the way, could have done what Barack Obama did when he was tied to the equally controversial and racially inflammatory Jeremiah Wright in Obama's 2008 campaign. So when Wright's uh, GD America sermon surfaced, I'm not going to say the full of GD America, but you know what I'm referencing there. Obama completely disavowed uh, Jeremiah Wright as a spiritual guide as more about Wright came to light. But Warnock has not done that with Cohn. And that explains why Warnock also not only defended Cohn, but also defended Jeremiah Wright in 2008. And again, years later, even after Obama had thrown his former pastor under the bus. So this is a guy that fully has embraced critical race theory, has fully embraced Marxist thought, has far, fully embraced critical theories in general. And honestly, he's, he's exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And he's gone one step further to actually teach that from the pulpit. And so... Obviously, it does not mean we don't pray for him, and it does not mean that he's my enemy, but it does mean that I want that guy to stay as far away from power as possible. And actually, his comments just generally show a, a strong disdain for all things American as well. Uh, I remember in 2008, Michelle Obama, after Obama was elected, her husband, she came out and actually said she was proud of her country for the first time in her entire life. That's a wild statement. If you were saying that the first time you're proud to be an American, if the first time that you're proud of your country is when your husband is elected, you really hate this country. If it took your husband being elected to the highest office in the land for you to affirm your country, not only does that show a vast level of entitlement, but also it just shows such a deep disdain for this country. And then there, in turn, the people who support American values as well, because obviously those go hand in hand. So now I want to finish with John Ossoff. John Ossoff is a far-left investigative journalist who's received funds in the past from entities like Al Jazeera, which is Qatar's media outlet. That's wild. They are extremists. They're very anti-Israel, anti-American. Um, he has received money from PCCW Media, which is actually a Hong Kong media company, but they actually side with the Chinese. So really, they do the bidding of the Chinese. Uh, and he's received $5,000 from them. Um, this he His journalism career is very wild. And actually, we can learn a lot about how he is viewed different political policy ideological issues through his journalism because he's a newcomer to politics so we don't have a long voting record to look back on we can learn also how he will side with certain issues in the future based upon who he's aligned himself with so on the climate he is as radical as they come he is in the camp of the alexandria ocasio-cortez when we talk about uh the economics 
his views on ideological economic policy. We see him align very closely with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. When we look at cultural issues, we see him align very closely with Hollywood and the strong, staunch progressives. Uh, His first fundraiser was with high net worth individuals in San Francisco, which is wild, guys. He's someone who has tried to make it very clear that, look at me, I'm a Georgian at heart. I am someone who desires the the Southern values of faith, family, community here. And I, I really appreciate average Americans and I'm not a tech elite. And then what's he do for his first fundraiser? He flies out to Silicon Valley, raises millions of dollars from these tech elites and does bidding uh, for the tech giants. He has made it very clear that his allegiances lie with China and with the large tech companies. I am a personal believer at the moment that the two greatest threats facing our society, arguably, are big tech and China. And so he is literally cozied up to the two entities that I am most concerned about. But uh, he is someone who's endorsed, endorsed Bernie's views to a T. He's grateful for their support, for Bernie's support, actually, of his campaign. He's he's verbalized that. He and Warnock together have raised 80% of their money from places like New- California and New York, states outside of Georgia which is wild. Again, both of them have tried to communicate that message that they're for average Georgians. Well, if that's really true, then why are you doing all of your fundraising out of state? He is, Ossoff is as pro-abortion as they come. He has made it very clear that he is fine with abortion all the way up until the moment of birth. Uh, He also is very pro open border style immigration. So a total federal overhaul of our immigration system to accommodate for mass immigration on a scale that would uh, really be detrimental to the United States. And if you want more information about immigration policy and kind of a Christian take on it, at least from my perspective and biblical interpretation, the way that I see immigration and the way that I believe that uh, the Constitution clearly outlines immigration and what healthy immigration looks like, you can go back to my episode. I actually compared Trump and Biden's policies on immigration the week before the election. So you can go back and check that out from October. Highly recommend doing that. He is as radical as it comes when on when we talk about immigration. So There are a lot of other issues we could cover, and we will as we head toward this January 5th runoff related to these two candidates, as well as David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. Again, I want to talk about them. We're going to go more into their past and their voting records as well. But I wanted to give, I wanted to start here because I wanted to really emphasize how dire this race is. If you're someone like me that advocates for the freedom of religion and the pro-life cause and advocates for our Constitution to be upheld and respected— fights for America to be prioritized when we talk about manufacturing and wants to stand against China, wants to stand up for Israel, wants to stand up for Hong Kong and Taiwan. If if you hold any of those beliefs, this Senate race, these Senate races are dire and the consequences are huge. So if you live in Georgia, please vote. Please get to know these candidates, get to know what they truly stand for, what they believe, why they believe it, how they've stood on different policy issues in the past, what they're promoting into the future. All these questions are so important to answer. And then once they're answered, please go vote if you live in Georgia. Honestly, the future of the United States looks very different depending on how these Senate races go. The next decade especially looks very different depending on the outcome of these Senate races, regardless of the outcome of the presidential race even. So... I want to end the episode there. Georgia's on my mind. I hope and pray it's on your mind too. I hope we're praying for this race. Ultimately, we know that regardless of how it goes, God's kingdom is advancing. So even if the quote unquote kingdom here in the United States looks troublesome, we know that ultimately he is the one that we put our hope and faith and trust in. So my peace and my joy and my my ability to carry out the call on my life that God has called me to is not determined upon what happens in this Senate race. But The truth is it matters and it's important because there are a lot of very key issues that are on the line in just a few weeks. So 
Bless you guys. Hope and pray that you enjoyed this episode, that this was a helpful resource for you. I'm looking forward to speaking with you all again tomorrow for a video update episode. So make sure that you are tuning into Refining Politics and Culture for that. Follow me on Instagram. Make sure that you're subscribed to the email list of the website as well to get show notes and outlines from this episode, uh, as well as Thursday's episode that's coming up. Looking forward to speaking with you all as we go throughout this week. It has been such a blast and an honor to speak to you today. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.